Welcome to 80s Music Exposed, the podcast in which we review all the best albums of the 80s, one month at a time. We will break them down, give you the skinny, and duke it out over whether you should or should not dig these back out again. If you are ready for an 80s music deep dive, from Public Enemy to Wham, Eno to XTC, Madonna, hair metal, reggae, and all points in between, then crank the boombox, turn the Walkman up to 10, and ooh, let's go. Now, from the kitchen, Chris and Henry. Welcome to 80s Music Exposed. We made it to May, part one. This is my radio voice. That's Henry's radio voice. I've gotten a little bit of feedback on our, um, on our intro piece. Right. Do you think people who listen to I'm it... I'm Chris, by the way. That's yeah, Henry with I'm his Henry. radio voice. If you're into it, uh, into May with us, you probably have figured out who we are by now, I guess. Maybe this is someone's first month. We've got a pretty dynamic month. Yeah, we're splitting it up into two parts. Yeah. We've got a lot of great records. Yeah. Um, so, welcome to the show. What, what kind of feedback did you get? I'm, oh, I'm uh, that it's kind of corny. Good. Cheese ball. Yeah. And that's what we're going for, right? I mean, that's Do you I, think that disqualifies? Do you think they listen to the first, like, 15, 20 seconds and like, eh? This isn't right. Or they're in on the joke. I hope they're in on the joke. I hope so, too. Yeah. Well, all of you that are downloading it and playing it. I like the joke. Obviously get it. Yeah, sure. That's what I'm saying. So here's what we do. And again, it's a yeah. tribute. The lady's a tribute to the night flight lady, which I think she's dead on it. So I did so it. We should send it to her. And so we tried to. <laughs> would you re-record this like in person? Right. If you would re-record it, we would change it. We Otherwise, would. we're keeping it. So Henry, tell them what we do. So okay, here's what we do every month. We're going we're going back to uh, the '80s and listening to some of the best records from that period, going month by month. We started with January, and now we're up to May of 1980. Year right, one of 1980. We picked the LPs by looking at the All Music Five Star ratings, Grammy nominees, and selections from our history that we love because we grew up during that period and know about. Records that came out, and we're not going to pass through a month, yeah, and uh, and not mention an important record that people should know about, right? And then we also were going to look at the Rolling Stone top twenty-five records from then, not uh, what Rolling Stone thinks now, but we kind of tried to look back on the internet to see the year end what they thought at the time. And we think we're getting our dates right now. We don't pick. We're not looking at Pitchfork Media's uh, top, you know, list of. 100 records today, we're looking at records that were reviewed well in the 80s. And part of it is is, is answering, trying to answer the question, does it stand up today? Is it worth uh, checking out again? Was it still good? Is it still good today? Yes. And Henry, I'm trying to very hard to make sure that we review each record in its proper month. We've got one this show that is not in its proper month. And the reason being... It was a January release, and we missed it. Which one? Uh, so the Pretenders record that we're going to review later on uh, was actually released in January. So if you guys let us know about a record you want us to review and we're already past the time, or if we missed a good one, we're going to go back and pick it up. All the other records, though, came out in May of 1980 that we're going to review today. So I just want to let everybody know we know that the Pretenders debut album uh, was already out at this point. Henry, tell them some of the stuff... Uh, that happened in May of 1980, okay. just for a little color. So in May, Mount St. Helen erupted. I remember it that. Killed, you remember that? It killed, yes, it killed 57 people. I don't remember that. I didn't remember that many people. And died. caused $3 billion in damages. My understanding is that there were some, there were some, I guess, precursor bits that let them know this was going to happen. Yeah, I kind of, my memory of it was kind of that it, it was going to, like, we were waiting for it to happen, like it was going to happen. But I don't. I, I really didn't remember that it killed that many people. But they it's sp- it's it's spewed, spouted, spewed. It spouted dust and ash that they said carried all the way across the country. How about remember spewed? That? It's spewed. Spewed. It spewed ash and dust uh, to the point where the, where they were talking about uh, it affecting the weather, even right. as far as the East Coast here, Charlotte, North Carolina. Well, a couple other things that happened that were culturally as big as Mount St. Helens. Nobody died, I don't think. But um, both The Empire Strikes Back and Pac-Man, the arcade game, were released in May of 1980. Pac-Man 1. 
Yes, the original arcade game Pac-Man. That is seismic iconic, right there. Iconic shit happening in May of 1980. Yes. I mean, that's not a typical month right there. That is an amazing month. And I'll tell you something else that's amazing. What? Looking at this spread of records, which we've had to break into two episodes, it's a pretty amazing month of music as well. So why don't we get into it, Henry? You, with you, think, the, they held, uh, you think they held on to the... To the records for like buying season was May the buying season. I don't know. I think it'll be interesting as we look at the years going forward. The way we're doing it, May seemed to be big in 1980. Also, November um, and October seem to be big. Yeah. If that's the same next year in, in 1981, if we get there, 81 and 82, like you maybe that be- is a trend. Kind of like you know how summer movies, have mm-hmm. a, you know, there's some sort of pattern to it. But the first record we're going to look at though, Henry, is called "I Just Can't Stop It," and it's by I like to call them the Beat. But people in America may know them as the English beat. Right. And uh, this song is Mirror in the Bathroom. on that whole um, having to add the word English or, you know, I had another favorite band called the Charlatans, which had the, to be Char- called the Charlatans, the UK. The UK. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, uh, I've only known them as the English beat. So it's hard. So it always it rolled off my mouth that way. Right. That record, it was one that you had uh, early on that, that, that we bonded over. So I know it pretty well. Yes. The, uh, but it always, uh, the fact that they were English, well, it was not as like I like saying that word. Yeah, and my first exposure to that record, which is kind of why I knew in my world it was hip, was Sting, who was in the police, was all over MTV early on, and he was wearing this uh, shirt uh, sl- that he cut the sleeves out of. Oh yeah, that said the beat on it. Oh yeah, and it had the album cover, and I was always like. Oh man, that must be a cool band. I didn't even associate. I didn't even realize it was the English Beat till I compared that picture to the album cover. But uh, yeah, is, over there the T-shirts just said the Beat. Is no. there a reason that you chose Mirror in the Bathroom over like maybe the cover that's on there, uh, Tears of a Clown? Yeah, I've always in my world I don't like that they're known for Tears of a Clown. Yeah, uh, I, I think they're that album, and I think they are far better than just doing a cover of a Smokey Robinson song. And I think Mirror in the Bathroom is a wonderful. It's the to me, it's the it's the best single on the album, so I thought I owed it to him not to not to pick uh, a cover. When you listened to it again, what did you think? So my my impression going back and listening to it again is amazingly how how well it holds up. It's pretty much a to me it's a timeless record, and I don't mean that in the in like it's it should be in three hundred years it's going to be one of the most important records. I mean it in the fact that the musical styles that they were mixing mm-hmm. it's just a good. Uh, party record that mixes a bunch of styles that you could pop on now and not go, oh, this sounds like the 80s. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just a good, uh, it's got, it's got reggae, ska, new wave, pop. It's got all the elements in there, but they're not annoying. I always found, and and here's the interesting part. I'd never really liked ska band. I hated madness. I was, this is exactly where I was going to go. But like, I, I liked madness to a point. I always they annoyed, but the everything piss out of me. about Madness for some reason Madness got colored for me with the bad things that happened to ska music that morphed into like that um, cherry popping daddies zoot suit phenomenon thing that happened in the nineties. It sort of it, like it sort of it seemed like it piggybacked on that, but somehow the English beat the beat 
uh, I did not end up associating that with them at all. No, and did and you I, feel like that? No, and I think another thing that we missed. It seemed like a lot of the bands that were making it in the United States, new wave bands, were hip to the English beat, sort of the way we were hip to Big Star um, and the Velvet Underground. So uh, I don't know if you noticed. There's a lot of like kind of ska elements on early Pretenders records and on the mm-hmm. Police records, and it's like there were two bands that kind of started all that in England, and it was the Specials and. The beat. It's like the punks could adopt that in a real way and it not seem corny or stupid. Well, and, right? and, and it, because it was a melding of poor, uh, it was a class thing. So there was a lot uh-huh. of a poor black uh, Jamaican and Caribbean people that had immigrated to England that were mixing with the punk kids. And um, But, you know, Ska kind of turned into that thing like you're talking about where it became... Uh, not so good. But another thing I don't think we realized over here, that was, that was, it, that took over England for like a year and it didn't really hit in America in the same way. So like Ska was just like super cool, you know, over there, like the waitresses, like there were all of a sudden these white bands having mm-hmm. a sax player and doing, uh, you know, reggae type beats or something. Um, so it was really, it affected everything over there. Um, it's like a, they had the uh, the English beat sort of did it right. They had the perfect mix that wasn't cloying or over the top. I mean, let's let's look at this. They were only around in their original incarnation from 1980 to 1983. In that time period, they were such an it band over there. Uh-huh. Here's who they opened for in that three year period: The Police, David Bowie, The Pretenders, REM, and The Talking Heads. Good night, Eileen. So they were like the band everybody wanted to open for them. When they went over to England at that time. So they were super hot. There were six singles released off of this record in the UK. So it was a major, major thing over there. The guy that was um, uh, Rankin Roger. Right. The guy that the Jamaican fella. Yes. When I started looking into this, um, when we were, I knew we were going to be talking about this. I was, I did a little bit of not research into him necessarily, but into Jamaican DJ stuff. Not to be, it, it's different from like rap DJs or hip hop DJs. Although I think that maybe it had its roots in, in what they were doing. They do toasting. Like what he did on this record was a toasting delivery. Right. Which I don't, it's almost like rap, but it's not quite. It still again reminds right? me of something we talked about last time. Done much better, but it reminds me of like what the guy in the B52s did. Yeah. But so, like he wasn't the singer, but he was kind of adding on little bits and spots. And like you said, toasting. He I mean, he was one of the coolest parts of the band. Well, you know, he, he and another guy from this band went on to do General Public, which yeah. I don't know if you remember General Public. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rankin Roger actually played with The Clash a little bit. He did um, Big Audio Dynamite, which was a, a band formed out of members of The Clash along with Rankin Roger. So um, there's a lot of stuff that we over here knew about, but I don't know that we listened too heavily. So... I did know about this record, Henry, back then at the time, and I. You mean when it came out? Yeah, as a kid, because of like the in nineteen eighty, right? Because I was a huge Police fan, and Sting was wearing a Beat T-shirt in in nineteen eighty, yeah. and I checked out the Beat. And, I didn't know about it till a decade later, right? And I loved it uh, then, um, and of course, I think it's great now. I think it holds up, so I definitely would recommend it. What What were your thoughts? Yeah, solid recommend. Uh, I know that Dave Wakeling is still doing this, right? I don't know if the records are still good. Or if they hold up anymore, or or if they still hold up. But for that one moment in time, those guys nailed that particular form formula, that particular genre to the wall, and it's a standard. I don't think anybody's really kind of met or right. gotten to since. All right, Henry. So what's our next record? All right, the next record we're going to talk about is The Cure, Seventeen Seconds. Did you listen to that record? I did. When you when it came through, oh or yeah. Did you. I no no go backwards. Yes, that's interesting. Yeah, a lot of these records that I thought that I and this record was huge for me. Um, that I thought I listened to originally, I actually picked up like in ninety or ninety one. Ah. right when we graduated high school. So when I got a hold of the Cure, and anybody who listens to our to our podcast probably knows who the Cure are. I, I it was disintegration time. Yes. Right. Right. The the album Disintegration. And and it, what would you call that? Uh, probably one of the best records there ever was made in the history of planet Earth. But I I and but I had not listened to 17 seconds. I I 
built my whole opinion of the cure basically based on that and had not listened to 17 seconds. Yeah, the disintegration came out in May of 89, which was our senior year of high school. Yeah. And I think I was more aware. I think I first became aware of The Cure for Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, the album. Yeah, prior everybody to had disintegration. It. it was all over MTV. Dun, 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 mm-hmm. dun, you know, it was kind of yep. happy-go-lucky. In and 1989, they always, it, you know, people had the CD boxes taped inside their locker. Right. You know, and that so they were already really well established and well known. Yeah, and so I think when I got to college is when I went back and discovered Seventeen Seconds. Now I would argue that for me personally, Seventeen Seconds is uh, more important than the Disintegration. It, to me, it's the it's my favorite Cure album. And actually, as far as being a musician, um, the bass playing on Seventeen Seconds is probably the most influential. Well, that's that's where I, that's one of the three records that I learned to play bass to. What I didn't realize was that Disintegration was an even more mature version of Seventeen, 17 Seconds. Right. When I put it on now, um, any any bits that I had heard of this were just kind of tangential at for, in the nineties when I first started liking music and listening to it. So getting the chance to listen to you know song one all the way to the end was enlightening for me because I got to hear some of the rougher bits of them putting this together. Right. Well, and I think, um, obviously if if you go back and listen to the band that we started, um, I didn't realize how much we owed to 17 seconds. It was the JC 120 amp. Right. I mean, I heard it all over this record. Right. But I, I think, I think a large part of that was, we were steering ourselves that way without knowing it because we were listening to it so much. But also I want to put out the importance of this record on this record of Simon Gallup. This is the album that he joined the cure. And if you listen to three imaginary boys, the debut, and then you listen to this one, the bass playing, I think is what is, is the big difference. Also, they added um, a keyboard player at this point. And I didn't realize till going back and listening to it this time, Henry, there's a lot of piano on this. I and I think there's a lot of uh, Brian Eno-type, Harold Budd-type piano uh, oh, being yeah. played on this record, which he admits that the records he was listening to at the time were like Low by David Bowie, mm-hmm. um, ambient records by Brian Eno. And that's why the other guy quit. He was not happy with... He thought that these songs... The demos for this for 17 seconds that Robert Smith presented sounded like soundtrack music to him and not hmm. um, songs. And so they parted ways. But I thought that was interesting because I think Simon Gallup, to me, is a big part of the cure. Like when he left again at the end of the mid 90s because of his addiction problems, oh. uh, I think uh, the cure started to their quality started to go down a little, a little bit. But but just based on 17 seconds, I think if you want to hear what the early 80s sounded like and not listen to the nostalgia stuff that's crammed down our throats all the time, 17 seconds sounds like the early 80s to me. Well, Chris, let's go ahead and give him a little taste of, uh, of one song on it, and maybe we can continue talking about it for a minute after okay. that. The song I selected for uh, this segment is called M. I don't know if you knew this. This was considered the first Cure record of the actual goth period. 
Yeah, which because, was a three records, which was seventeen seconds, it, faith, and pornography. This record was a lot was light. I mean, I guess light years was a consi- a big jump from the imaginary three imaginary. I can't boys. even get the damn name in my head I mean, right. Like that. I, maybe I don't like the I title don't of it. Don't, don't but like when it. I listen to it, it's a lot more angular pop. It's also a lot sadder right? sounding. It's a it's th- this one yeah seventeen yeah. seconds is the first like downer like the cure is known as the mopey wearing black guys the only of. bits that I could get out of the imaginary record was that uh, was some of the chord changes that he likes right were there right but they weren't really fully explored uh, the guy that produced this record Michael. Mike Hedges, not to be confused with Michael Hedges, like oh, the yeah, progeny the guy. Yeah, that, acoustic guitar player. The guy from Wyndham Hill. Yeah, not that guy. You know, rest in peace. White but, guy wearing a dashiki. Yeah, he's gone now, though. He was an engineer on the Imaginary record, and the guy said, we want to do something crazy. We want to do some some different productions. There's a whole article on the internet. I believe this is the first time, too, that Robert Smith took co-production credit right i didn't know that yeah he kind of jumped in there too but i think it was because he wanted to change the sound and what you know what you need to realize too is that to achieve that sound today or even in uh in the late 90s it was easier to do because of the technology that was in place at the time the delays and and the flangers and all of that stuff and but what they did in the studio was they used a lot of tape loops right and would and there's a whole bit that talks about how they had to I don't even fully understand it, but they had to extend the tape loop onto like a mic stand with a a pencil taped to it that had like this particular pencil had like slick uh paint on it, and they would loop they would spool the tape from across the room to achieve that that sound wow. But anyways, a great article on on uh, the internet from Mike Hedges that talks about that How and the kind of equipment that he did. Incidentally, this same dude ended up working on um, music for Harry Potter wow. and the Goblet of Fire. I think it is. Wow, isn't that weird? That is weird. People's careers take weird. T- you know, I mean, the same guy, right. Mr. Punk Rock, who was you know sure. working in the studio with Robert Smith. You know, years later, graduates and does like major. You know, music soundtrack stuff. I also, I think it was interesting I, looking back at the at their body of work. Um, you know, those three albums in a row, Seventeen Seconds Faith and Pornography, combined with Disintegration, kind of set an image for The Cure that is actually not really true of them being mopey, uh, downer type people. Uh, in between those records, you had a record called The Top. Uh, that came out in 1984, and you had Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, which are danceable, like, pop records. I saw those as a mixture of what that earlier stuff was doing and then the next two. Right. It's it's like like that that stuff always existed with him. Wish and Wild wild Mood Swings had stuff on it like Friday I'm in Love, which was not uh, downer, mopey, sad stuff. Well, it's it's not – it's people aren't happy, sad, mad, glad. There, there are, you know, ranges of emotion. There's resignation. There's, you know, all those things that I think are reflected in music. Like, it's, it doesn't have to be happy and sad. Well, well anyway, uh, for my money, I feel about 17 Seconds is my favorite Cure record, even though Disintegration is, like Henry said, like a masterpiece of all times. It, it, well, just for I me personally, know. I love 17 Seconds. And uh, I would definitely recommend that you go back and listen to it. It's, yeah, I, and I'll tell you something else. It's a lot more artistic than I thought it was at the time. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. it's not just a Cure record. It's a pretty for me. It is the first Cure record. Yeah, you, you it's not. You don't even want to say the title of the first Cure. I, record. Well, I have a mental block on it. I know it exists, <laughs> and it's you know it is what it is. But I don't I don't like it nearly as much uh, as this one. This one um, really sank in. Uh, I'm really glad I got a chance to to look at it in detail. Our next record is called Music Man, and it is by the legendary country musician Waylon, Waylon Jennings. Jennings. J.J. Taylor's hero, the best I ever heard. I sing a little loud of hearts, I can't hear the word. Some folks call it rock and roll, while others call it blues. Well, I detect a country soul and I've seen his cowboy shoes. 
you go first on this one. Why do you make me talk about it? Oh, I, I got, I've got lots of stuff to talk about about it. You want me to go first? Do you like it? Man, that's a tough question. Do I? Do I? I'm going to go on record and tell you I don't like this record at all. It's not good. In fact, it's bad. I, if you, there, there, this guy. Okay, let's in, get it out of the way first. Okay. The Dukes of Hazard theme is on this song. It's well, on this album. You got to give it that, right? I, I kind of look at that as the <laughs> negative, actually. Yeah, do you? <laughs> I kind of think of that as like, well, now I can't Did, take the rest of the record seriously. <laughs> Did you realize that the version that you heard on the record is not the one we got to hear when we were kids yes, on the TV show? Because yes, he's got that line in there about how uh-huh. his mama only gets to see his hands. The on banjo TV. was was big. Was yeah, like, I, I like the record version better, to tell you the truth. I don't. I, I think I like the TV version. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I couldn't tell. I think that the reason why I like the TV version is because it was shorter. Okay, well, let me let me make some let me make since I didn't know you were going to say how bad you dislike. Let yeah. me make some things to try to prop it up a little okay. bit. Okay, it was his fifth number one country album in a row from 1976 till 1980. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Second of all, I think listening to it, you have to admit that if you don't remember or you don't listen to him very often, Waylon Jennings' voice is freaking legendary well it's it's icon like you can't it, yeah by it's it. an icon even but the dukes the, hazard theme yeah, i mean when when yeah. he says just a good old boy i mean it's like oh my god Waylon jennings mm-hmm. all right let me let me give you something else give me something else i i've always thought Waylon jennings has been the best artist that i've heard that exemplifies in simple ways the meeting of blues country and rock i can hear him as a rock musician, as a country musician, and as a blues musician, all at the same time. But why is this record uh, the greatest? It's not the greatest representation. Of okay, that. so next, this is not the Waylon Jennings record you want to listen to if you're a Waylon Jennings. Right. And I'll tell you the number one reason, and the reason I played It's All Right. There's a lot of covers on this record. That's and one he did. That's one of his. That's why I played it. Yeah. Um, it bothered me that there were a lot of covers. There's even a Steely Dan cover. There's a Kenny Rogers cover, a Jimmy Buffett cover. That's the thing that's making me, that, that, that the, makes me cringe. The rumor was that the, he was having such drug problems that mm-hmm. he was blocked create, creatively and he didn't have enough material mm-hmm. to, to come out. The Steely Dan song is just, I mean, I don't get it. It just sounded like he heard it on the radio and then went, why don't we just do this, boys? Yeah. Well, it's, to me, it was the sound of a guy who was really powerful well, I was and kind of, had a lot of money and was able to bring all the guys in his band on to do exactly the stuff he wanted them to do without any really question or nobody helping him get there. I could, I could kind of hear sort of the drug-addled, I don't care bits. Well, in, and it's in interesting head, to me. I don't you know? know how much Richie Albright played into this but which one was he richie albright produced it but he's also the drummer Mm -hmm. and something that waylon said i don't know if you saw this where he said he actually i I wanted to quote this that the whole record was based on his resolute bass drum and i i have to admit this henry i listened to the record today and i went you know what i've never really heard an album that leads with just the bass drum as much as this record does. And it's not like he's playing double kick pedal or doing anything amazing with it. The guy plays the, <laughs> the kick drum like um, a right-wing conservative guy deals out opinions <laughs> about Trump. There's no questioning them. It's just... Was that typical? It, 
I, was that typical of country music at the time, the big arena country stuff? I don't know. Or, I need to go back and listen to more. But after listening to this, I was like, you know what? This album does lead with the kick drum. It's kind of crazy. Um, the rest of the drums are just kind of eh. And uh, Richie Albright was his drummer all the time, but he also produced this record. Again, I don't think this is anywhere near the best example of Waylon Jennings' music, so I can't give it a recommend either, even though it did have a number one hit on it with the Dukes of Hazard theme, and it's still Waylon Jennings. I mean, you're not going to listen to it and go, i got to turn this off, I'm going to puke. I mean, it's, it's still Waylon Jennings, but it definitely sounds like he phoned it in. Yeah, on this one. Right. Maybe listen to another Waylon Jennings record somewhere else. Yeah. I don't know. It was interesting to me, too, that uh, one of the songs on Here, Henry, was written by his wife. I did read that. But it was a cast-off of hers, and he just grabbed it kind of... It sounded to me like he just thought it was funny to rehabilitate it mm-hmm. because she didn't want it done. And he was just like, like you were talking about, just sitting around the studio, and they were probably like, we need another song. He's like, yeah. let me just grab this one that she did. She hates it, and let's just... I'll make it a... I'll put it on a hit record. You know what I mean? Just because he was wailing. Well, he had a hit with this anyway. I mean, you know, even as it was, even as kind of piss poor as we think it is now. Yeah, it was weird that you could phone it in and have a hit. I I did find some interesting stuff out about Waylon Jennings, though, that I thought might be fun to talk about. I didn't know if I... I don't know if you read that about where he decided uh, later on in life, I guess about 10 years later, he needed to quit kick the coke habit, Uh but not for good. He just wanted... he, He bought an apartment... And moved there for a month to kick, uh-huh. so that when he came back, he could he could do a managed cocaine habit, <laughs> which I love that you know that you know that you know that thought you have in your head when you're like an alcoholic or an addict, like if you're addicted to smoking, like I'm going to stop for a month, so when I come back, I'll just smoke three a day, right. and it's like uh, coke doesn't it, work that right. way. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> Not even with six. Not when you even when you go to like oh I'll just have one on the weekend. Oh yeah. then you'll have one before the weekend. Yeah, I'm gonna have a no cocaine uh, month. So when I come back, I won't do fifteen hundred dollars a day, which is what he was up to. Christ on the cross. <laughs> so yeah, that's you think um, that would eat your nose out? Oh, I know. Like how much did Stevie Nicks have to do to eat her entire nose out if he was doing fifteen hundred a day? That's the rumor. Rumor, nice one. Fleetwood Mac humor. All right, Henry, what's our next record? Okay, good. I get to I get to introduce this one. This is uh, Diana Ross. You do know that I get sometimes Diana Ross and Donna Summers mixed up in my head. Of course. Do you do that? Yes. I'm glad I'm not the only one. Yeah, they were both uh, disco mavens. Of course, Diana Ross was in the Supreme, so she right. has a lot more um, and, and cachet. The, this is her Donna tenth Summer. album. What's it called, Henry? It's called Diana. And let's play a song before we get into it. With a little D. With a little D, right. Mm-hmm. And let's uh, play a song before we get into it. Okay. This is Upside Down. Of course it is. <laughs> excited about this one because i think we're gonna have an argument about it um can you smell it can i smell an argument yeah that yes. we're gonna have an argument yes i smell one brewing so i think if you if you guys out there in in podcast land go back and listen to our very first episode we both favorable favorably reviewed a record called guilty by barbara streisand produced by barry gibb, barry gibb from the bgs I am going to submit to you, Henry, that this record is the equivalent, is the black equivalent 
to that, which is a Diana Ross record doing the same thing with all songs written and produced by Nile Rodgers and I don't want to leave this leave him out. Edwards. Yes. Uh, What's Bernard, Bernard, Bernard Edwards, Edwards yeah. from Chic. Uh, so I posit to you, Henry, that this is a better record than Guilty. You know, I, I don't want to put them next to each other. I think this this album is a victim in a couple of ways. A victim of being I, awesome? I think it's had it's had problems. It's got problems. One of them is that is that the guys from Chic who like wrote those songs wrote them a certain way and produced the record and produced it and they did a whole entire album of stuff. It got taken away from them. And re-record, they redid her vocals, and they cut out large parts of the instrumentation. In in a couple of situations, it actually makes it better. The cuts they made in one, it didn't. Like if you listen to the upside down version, that's the Le Chic, uh, the Chic mix. Right, it kicks ass. In fact, upside down is probably one of the best songs that they ever did. Uh, La Freak is a better song. So <laughs> don't, don't start down that Dude, road. Dude, that, but, that, that, but Upside Down is a better song than anything on Guilty. Yeah, I can give you that. And, but uh, I find that. And, and did you know that the guys from Chic wrote and produced four records that year? I, in did, I did read that. I mean, that. They, were, you gotta, they were probably tired. I, they did Sister Sledge and some other they people. They did Sister Sledge, Love Somebody Today. They did Sheila and B Devotions, King of the World. Yeah. They did their own record called Real People, and they did Diana by Diana. I found some of the lyrics. All in 1980. I thought the instrumentation was great. I found some of the songs to be really lyrically sort of ham-fisted, right? I, I didn't really um, care for the lyrics of my old piano yeah, or, so, so or, or making it fun. It didn't speak to me If you go back and all. listen to Chic, their whole bit, though, is they get a jam and yeah. then they're very light on lyrical content, and they repeat stuff over and over and over. But they were trying to write stuff for, like, Little D Diana. Like, you know, the the, the record that has the Little D that's supposed to personify her. It was supposed to be built around these conversations that she had. I felt like I didn't get much of that. See, and I totally you know, disagree with that. I think Diana Ross did exactly the same thing as... Well, no, I I, I don't think that. I think... I think Barry Gibb went to Barbara Streisand. I think I here know. Diana Ross went to Chic and said, write and produce and make me a disco yeah. queen. And this is like this is like the way Tina Turner came back in the mid eighties. Diana Ross didn't want to be known just as a supreme. She mm-hmm. wanted to be Diana Ross. I even think the little D thing was a joke, was a play on I'm being Diana Ross and but little D. Um, that's a, that's just something I imputed in there. Don't right. she never said anything like that? I'm just making an assumption based on the from this. I'm also super thrilled that by the by May of 1980, yeah, in within five months, Henry and I have already reviewed three records that have had three songs <laughs> that one of them is now legitimately an LGBT anthem. Yep. I'm yep. coming out. That, that but, song is definitely an LGBT. I'm coming anthem. out uh, upside down. Was there another one on here? No, was, not on this record, but United by Judas Priest, which we did earlier. I think we oh, wanted yeah. it to be an LGBT um, anthem. And then uh, Pete Townsend had his basically coming out statement, <laughs> Rough Boys. 1980 was very progressive That's an, and kind of crazily more progressive than where we're headed right now. <laughs> Interestingly enough, like the music at least. Do you think you could come out with those three songs Do, right now and have hits on the radio? No. With Rough Boys, no. I'm Coming Out, and no. United? No. I don't either. So uh, that was good. I will give you this, Henry, because I, I still think, and folks, I want you guys to to be the final arbiter on this for yourself. I definitely recommend this and think you should go back and listen to it. I think the lowest lows on this record are worse than the lowest lows on Guilty. I disagree. Like there's some, yeah. there's I some think things on Guilt. Like there's a couple songs on this record that are worse than anything on Guilty. But everything that's better on this is so much better that this record overall has to be better in my mind. I, I, I disagree. I think that the highs are extremely high. The lows, uh, to me, go exceptionally low. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. The lows are worse than Guilty. Right. Yes, so we're agreeing. We're not disagreeing. But you but you say that makes this record still better. 
No. Like so, you would say guilty. I say, so let me I'm say saying this guilty is, is more consistently great, whereas this record it's exactly has what several, I just said. several spikes. So I will but why does it make it less? The worst songs on this record uh-huh. are worse than any song on Guilty. The better songs on this are so much better than any song on Guilty. It has to be the better record. Oh, well. Under your reasoning... A middle-of-the-road record that's just consistently well, okay they, just is better than a record that not has okay. really high This record was not and just... really low low. But Streisand was not just okay. It was good. Oh, we both gave it these records are really good. So I'd say that one is consistently good and gets a recommend. i say this one has some uh, several short, sharp shots right. other than that. Right, and I would say Journey Escape has a couple just total clunkers, but the rest of it is so amazingly great pop well, it, 80s music. You have to say it's amazing. I'd, I'd have to look at I'd have to look at the Journey record and see how many songs were good on it. I don't remember. Don't be silly. Don't be silly. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't... Um, what's the big one? The big Journey album? Escape. Was, no, was, Escape wasn't the big one, was it? So that No, I don't know about Journey. That, that doesn't have anything to do with what the fuck we're talking about today. <laughs> We are talking about so journey escape. Frontiers? Journey is. I don't really know. <laughs> journey escape had don't stop believing. Who's crying now? Open arms. You know, what I'm stone thinking? in love. Journey's greatest hits. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Anyway, getting back to, it's just a matter of. Um, so, like I was saying, which disco record you like more? Yes, and I like this one more, and you like Guilty more. Yes, but there are some irresistible, not to be uh, fucked with songs on this record. Can I say something? There, out of your ass. On the, yes, you're already doing that. Go for it. On the on the chic songs, there were these some extended sort of musical breaks that were like really badass. But I'm thinking the guys that were in charge of Diana Ross's career. It was right after the anti-disco stuff that happened in the 80s. And that radio DJ said if she released the record the way it was, that it would have been career suicide. After listening to the, the deluxe edition that has the Le Chic mixes, I'm almost agreeing with them. Because I'm thinking some of them are way too long for, but if you listen for to, record buying people. If you listen to Chic albums, that's what they do. They will do really – basically Daft Punk – is yeah. the new chic. I mean, they'll do these really long instrumental parts. It's almost like they're doing sample, uh, not sampling. They're almost doing what rap artists do where they mm-hmm. take a certain part and just loop it over mm-hmm. and over and over. They were doing that before there were tape loops. They were just playing it over and over and over and over. That was the chic style. That's mm-hmm. why I think Diana Ross said that's what she wanted. And then maybe her handlers were like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, like, did you listen to the previous one? I didn't get a chance to do that. Yeah, I did. Was it good? I didn't think it was good. Because uh, I was hoping to put this record into some some um, context. I know Ashford and Simpson were involved with it. Yes, I mean it was still it's still kind of discoy, but it wasn't definitive. I think this. I, I do agree that this was the definitive. Like nine million copies of record of yeah, this. Sure, and you know she hasn't aged a day. Like if you look at her today, <laughs> she's still beautiful. <laughs> And no wonder Michael Jackson wanted to look just like I know, her. I know. And if you see the record cover of this, it's shot by like a very famous fashion photographer who did like It's staying. a cool I have to admit it's a cool cover. I mean Yeah. I mean I hate it it does everything about this record is the stuff I would have told you I hated when I was twenty years old. Yeah. I would have just said bleh. But I love it. I love everything about it now. So I would recommend it. I would definitely recommend it. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't. Is there a middle ground here? Listen to it with the Le Chic songs on it. That's what I like to hear. Up, that, wait, that first song's great. Upside down. Are you kidding me? I'm going to let you. I'm, I'm going to let you hang out there on your own. <laughs> Just say whatever you want about Diana Ross record. It's cool. <laughs> What's our last record? Henry? All right, cool. All right, the last we're going to talk about the Pretenders, and the record is called the Pretenders. It is it the pre- the Pretenders? It's just called Pretenders. She always called them Pretenders. Yeah, the, not the right. She okay. always hated the the, but no, not the band the the. She hated the word the in front of <laughs> Pretenders. But that's the, a to- totally different show. I know, right? <laughs> with, a, with a completely. Different we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> the song we're going to play is called Kid. Keep my 
So, Henry, as I've already stated before, Mia Culpa, this record came out in January of 1980, and we missed it. I'm so sorry we did that. So tag this on the end of January, dude, that's tracking us. Yeah, if you're, if you're really... Giving us feedback. Yeah, if you really hate that we put something in the wrong month, we know we did this. I can't believe we didn't play Brass in Pocket. Um, the reason I didn't little- play Brass in Pocket is because I really wanted to make this whole segment a tribute to James Honeyman Scott, who is one of my favorite guitar players, and I think Kid is the best example. But also, everybody knows Brass in Pocket, okay? Yeah. And I hate just playing the one that everybody... Because what we want yeah. to do with this show, Nostalgia already knows about him. Brass in Pocket is the go-to, like... Don't you hate when a radio station says, uh, and we're going to play The Smiths, and then all they play is How Soon Is Now? Yeah. Like... The or Smiths or this just, charming man. How soon is now? Yeah. Oh, I'd love to even hear this charming man. It's just like I, I feel like everybody plays that. I, all I ever hear is how uh, how soon is now. But well, we we try we try not to talk about records before we get on the mic here. But uh, the other day we put this on together in the uh, you know they have really great stereo systems in cars now, and uh, we put it in there. And what's the first thing that jumped out at you, Chris? Um, I think that you could hear both guitars. You could hear <laughs> yeah. her guitar, not just James Honeyman Scott. You could guitar. hear every chick chick. You yeah, know? you could hear every little thing that she was doing. And that that brings up a good point. I was, I, and I'm really going to geek out on James Honeyman Scott. Yeah, uh, good. He had a quote uh, about his style of playing, and I didn't notice this till we listened to the remasters. But uh, I think we even commented on this on one song in the car. I couldn't tell what the time signature was. He said. Uh, so everything on this first record, he came in after most of it was done and played over top of it. Really? And he said, they all thought I had this really cool style where I would come in late and do my licks. And he was like, I could never figure out what time signature she played in. Because he said, she always had this weird strum thing going on. So he's like, I would just wait until I heard her in and then start playing. And then they would all go, oh, that's so cool. He's got this like delayed style. But he was like... I just could never figure out where Chrissy Hunter's putting her guitar. Um, also, my favorite guitarist on the planet's name is Johnny Marr, and his quote that I found about James Honeyman Scott was, most of all the jingle jangle in my guitar playing comes from James Honeyman Scott, the Pretenders. He was the last important influence on my playing before I went out on my own. The first time I played Kid with the Pretenders, I couldn't believe it. I've used that solo to warm up with every day, for the rest of my years. <laughs> Do you really? <laughs> that was the quote he, he, he had. And of course, you know, Johnny Moore joined the Pretenders for a hot minute mm-hmm. um, later on. James Honeyman Scott died after the second record came out. So we've only had two records with him on it, but just an amazing guitar player that defined a lot of the 80s sound that f- we know. The first time I listened to this, um, the song, of course, everybody heard Brass in Pocket, but it always seemed like her vocals overpowered everything on all the speakers that I had. You know, I had like a little boombox or a, a small sort of, you know, stereo that I heard off the radio. So I didn't own a copy of the record proper. Right. So, and so my first real listen to this was in the context of doing the pod here, other than the stuff that I knew from her. And some of that was colored with some of the stuff I didn't like that they did, which is like I'll stand by you and or something well, like late, that. Later, the late, later late, stuff, late probably stuff, yeah. off of Last of the Independents or a record right. like that. So when I got the chance to listen to this, especially through you know a, a better sound system, I couldn't believe how much uh, there was gravel in there. 
There oh. wasn't. It wasn't all chick, 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 high end stuff. It was like he had some some uh, color and shape to his guitar work that I didn't get to hear. Well, and and I think she's underrated too because a lot of the rhythm guitar is her, and her her lyrics. You've got to take two or three passes to even begin to like try to understand what she's talking about. Yeah, just great. And I and and so I knew about this record then because. Brass and Pocket was all over MTV when it started, mm-hmm. and so they were like my one of my first cool bands. Like I mm. knew they were they were cool. Yeah, my cousin to- turned me on to them, right? Very briefly. But uh, the interesting thing to me too is uh, I I hear it now a lot in like um, Karen O from the Yeah Yeah Yeahs mm-hmm. or the girl Shirley Manson from Garbage mm-hmm. are very much copying. Uh, Christy Hines' vocal delivery, but do you, she's so influential on females, uh, yeah, uh, rock stars. But I agree with you; the lyrics were surprisingly really good and sexually uh, uh, aggressive. It was like punk. It's it, yeah. it was like she came out of the punk uh, scene in England, and even though she's from Ohio, it is, it, she's mentioned alongside some of her contemporaries. Um, and it seems like some of these guys, some of these female. Um, singers had to adopt some sort of level of macho delivery. I, I don't know how to explain that the best way. Like the other day, when you and I spoke about it briefly, I told you that she reminds me of Pamela Adlon a little bit, or um, in, in the Joan way, Jett, in, because they have this very slight macho swagger about them. Well, it's like I'm playing with the boys, and it's yeah. a very masculine world. And I'm not afraid to get in there and mix it up, but. He, like maybe a Patty Smith or right. even Debbie Harry had to right, you know, sure. step out hard. Like, sure. you know, even though she was beautiful and very obviously feminine, you know, you, um, there was a lot of that kind of stuff that happened in the eighties for whatever reason to sure. survive, I guess, as a female artist, you had to do that. She made from what I can, from what I've read several, um, passes at trying to get a band together and trying to do music is the one thing that she wanted you know, wanted to do. Yeah, she was actually writing for the NME in the mid seventies. Um, she did all. She did all the cool stuff. Henry. she like moved from Ohio to England. Ended up working at uh, McLaren's fashion store, Sex, where the Sex Pistols started. Where he started all of that. And she was a writer for the NME, which she said she just backed into. She had no interest in writing at all. And then just. Is able to form a post punk band. So here's something I read that you might not know about. I don't. She went to um, uh, Kent State. Yeah, and she was she was that was a big part of her wanting to leave Ohio. And she and one at, she was present at the at the at Kent the student State at massacre. the shootings, and one of her friends' boyfriends was one of the people killed. Yes, and I mean I, I read her biography, so I'm. I oh, that, I, well, yes. you know more about it than I do. But, but I, I think, just found that really interesting. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't realize she's from Ohio to begin with. But she has that song that has the lyrics in it about Ohio. Um, I want some, something else I want to mention about this first record, which, by the way, I think is the best Pretenders record. The first side is so like aggressive and post-punk kind of like. There's even a couple songs that are kind of instrumental, almost like they don't. They were yeah, doing no. they were doing demos, and then and 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 I almost got this feeling where I was like, "This is a really good kind of wire sounding post punk." But, but they but they're not fully formed. And then you flip the record side over, B, and, and that's when we get the big rock. Fucking like yeah. big eighty. They kind of fool brass you. You're absolutely right. They fool you on side A into being this one kind of band. Then. Then, That's good, but not great. You know, like it's like, oh wow, I can hear all this good post punk stuff, but they need some, they need some more time in the pot or whatever that. Yeah, and whatever then that and means. then then you flip it over, and it's like, I I I struggled to say one critical thing about it. And so just all, so I, you flip it over, and you've got Kid, which was a hit, um, Brass Brass in Pocket, which was a hit, and Mystery Achieved, which was a hit, and they're all big pop hits. Wasn't Mystery Achieved a big fat song? Um, I swear I thought it was. A big fat song. One of the song. big fat mean? rock song, a lot of guitar. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, dun, yeah. dun, 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 you know, just kind of a big. The only thing I'll say, and you're, I'm prepared to take a bullet from you about it because I think you might be ready. Do you think, is it possible, there was just a hair too much reverb in some places? Just a little. It's not perfect <sighs> for that reason. 
do you think? And, and let me tell you, there's a difference between reverb and delay as was put into practice on um, on 17 seconds versus how it was done on this record sometimes. I hope when I uh, have do the production on this, I, I make sure I can hear me going... So you're just going to say no? You don't believe me? No, you I don't just disagree. It. Okay, I totally disagree. Um, I just think it ever so slightly, ever so slightly dates it with their use of, of reverb on it. And That's again, all. and here's another thing, and, and I'm not, I'm not arguing with you about this. Here's another thing that bothers me when people say that mm-hmm. is this is the record that dates it because this record invented that <laughs> fucking sound that you're <laughs> saying is dated. So when someone else does it now, you can say, oh, that sounds dated. The Pretenders, like, so the guy in the Kinks slashed one of the cones in his amp to create the uh, distorted sound that he used on Gloria. Right. And people have been trying to imitate that amps and pedals and all this Mm -hmm. have been trying to imitate that sound. If you go back and call the guy from the Kinks dated sounding, it's like, dude, yeah, I invented the sound. So interesting. Hey, go fuck yourself on the dated thing. <laughs> like, go invent a sound and then call it dated. But I, I hear what you're saying. I, I get what you're saying. Um, I, I don't. I think they kind of invented that sound. And I'll tell you something else. I, and it still blows my mind. Every time you hear that first little ding, ding, ding of brass yeah, and You pocket, know exactly what it it's is. It's like iconic. That is yeah. like, oh my God. It's just like. The heavens open up. So let's go to our let's go to our pick of the. I can't say pick of the month because this is just half the month. Well, you We've have still to got pick another your first half of May. Yeah. So what is what is your uh, LP of the first half of May? Uh, I'm going to go with 17 seconds uh, of this batch. Uh, it's a difficult choice, obviously, but as far as um, what resonated for me and made the most impact and uh, the biggest boom for me out of all these was that one. So 17 seconds by the cure. Right. And I'm going to go with this record, obviously the pretenders, the pretenders. Um, I think it might be one of my top 10 records of all time. And it's definitely going to make my top 10 of the year when we do our year end uh, episode. So I'm going to go with this record. I think you can't go wrong with side two. If you're a little sketchy on post punk music and you're not sure you want to go back and check it out, start with side two and then you can go to side one. But I think you'll, I think you'll love it. All right. You know, we'll be back uh, next time with part two of May. Of May. But we have to come up with some better facts about May. I'm just going to have to continue the May journey. You're going to be hard-pressed the rest of this of our lifetime as a program coming up with better facts than The Empire Strikes Back and Pac-Man came out in the same True. month. That's a pretty big <laughs> – I, I can't wait if you can find us some better facts. So next month, Henry, or next episode, we've got part two, which we've got. We get, you want to tell the people? Yeah, I want to tell some of the records. Okay. Or at least what we've got. We've got some Peter Gabriel, some Paul McCartney, Emmylou Harris, uh, Roxy Music, and Willie Nelson. And Rocker. here we go, probably picking apart like amazingly great records and staking out – you know. Why I don't like this record? Ridiculous territory, I guess. I'm going to end up talking about why maybe somebody's reverb was fucked up in a second. Yeah, but you got to remember for every <laughs> for every for every May, which is true. You really you got to, but you. But have for to. every May, there's going to be an uh, there's going to be a march that has air supply in it. So that'll be easy to just. I mean, it's not fuck that one up. This May is a pretty good month. But yeah, I, I see where you're going. You did have to nitpick the reverb because what do you? What else are you going to do, right? Well, if I have to pick something to be critical about, right? It's so stupid. If you like our show, uh, and if you know, if you like the records we're choosing, if you uh, rate and review us on iTunes, that would be great. You can also listen to us on Spotify and Stitcher. You can share it with your friends. Uh, we're still working on our Patreon page. Of course, by the time we get 12 episodes deep and ended. Um, the 1981, maybe we'll have that up, uh, currently in development. It keeps us going, helps us pay, you know, for bandwidth, keep the lights on. Um, we have a Twitter. It's, uh, at 80s exposed. You can email us at 80s music exposed.com, uh, .com, 80s music exposed at gmail.com. Jeez, oh, Pete. <laughs> You also might be interested in our sort of sister podcast. We've been doing this one, that one since about November last year. It's called the No GD Band Podcast. The stuff we talk about is a little more current. 
a little less wistful, maybe even less professional. So if you like that, it would be great. Any final thoughts, Chris? No, I'm just looking forward to uh, the next half of May. And Henry, say the words. Guess what? What's that? I made you a mixtape.